I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. first AI Legends podcast. My name is Joe Connors and I have two great guests on. My first guest is Mr. Professor Podcast himself, Kaylin Green. How you doing, pal? <laughs> I'm all right, Joey. Thanks. Thanks for that wonderful intro. You're the only person that calls me Professor Podcast, but I'm going to take it. <laughs> it's because you're a beast, my friend. You're amazing. <laughs> and my second guest is Hatem. And I want to say your last name is Caduce, but if I mess that up, you tell me now. You got a spot on. Ah, uh, brilliant. Nice. So, how are you guys doing today? All good, all good. Uh, just had a really big Sunday lunch. So, uh, completely fueled up, carbo-loaded for this pod, locked locked into place. I'm <laughs> ready to go. Really exciting topic. It's, it's such a good idea, this series. Um, so, I mean, you know... It's it's a legend series, so I mean, it's going to be from a lot of different places. But to start off with Muhammad Ali, who means so much to so many people. I, I mean, I literally, I could probably talk about this all day. I actually have done that before. I have talked about Muhammad Ali for an entire day before. So uh, yeah, really excited to see what happens on the pod. I mean, yeah, the word legend is overused quite a lot. But um, yeah. when it comes to, I mean, there is in the sport of boxing and even, well, we're going to talk about it later, but the way he crossed over into politics and everyday life. I mean, Muhammad Ali is the ultimate. I mean, every young, young, old should know who he is, will know at least one facet of his life. And unfortunately, it's quite in the topic because he passed away recently as well. So it should be a really good, good conversation as well. Brilliant, guys. So again, Kay, you touched on this is the Anfield Index Legend Show. And I just want to say for anybody listening out there, I'm hosting today, but I will not host all these. All you have to do is go to Gags, present him with any sporting legend in your eyes. Uh, Gags came, I went to Gags months ago and said, Hey, we're going to start doing this. I'd love to do Muhammad Ali if you would be cool with it. Came back later and said, Let's rock and roll. So remember, this is open to anybody. So I was saying you've set the ball rolling because I've been hustling about Mike Tyson as well. So. All right, gentlemen, so let's, without further ado, let's get this uh, party started. And I do want to say in the beginning, we are going to start with a little intro with Ali. 
And we are going to talk about his boxing career, but I think it'd be an injustice to not talk about Ali and all the other great things he's done and the people that he's meant to other people. So I'll start with Kay first. Talk to me a little bit about Ali's life and his boxing career. Uh, Ali, I, I got to say, like, for me, Ali means, he means so much more than boxing, as you said. It, it was, this is something a lot like Liverpool Football Club that my, my father shared with me and that his father shared with him. I, For me, growing up in apartheid South Africa, to have a, a, an idol like that, and you must remember at that time, like my father supported Liverpool. Nowadays, you have games on TV all the time. My dad would have to wait two or three times a year where before the main attraction in a cinema, they would play the highlights of like a completely random Liverpool game in black and white, you know, people running around in their short shorts and the horrible muddy fields. And that's the first time you got to see this. And they would have Ali fights in the cinema and, and that kind of thing. But at this period, you know, at that period of, of, um, of, the history of my country where you had uh, people of color, black people specifically being so badly treated, somebody like Muhammad Ali to come up and to, to take just everything by the scruff of the neck, the way he did was absolutely insane. It was a Jesse Owens moment. You know, it was, it was something so completely beyond us. We, nobody could ignore it. And, uh, but on top of that, I, I think, you know, I'm, I know we're not talking about his boxing that much, but I don't know if I could really think of that many other sporting people who were, while also at the absolute pinnacle of their, maybe their entire sport, maybe ever, to also do this type of thing, uh, socially, culturally. I know boxing is spoiled for choice along those measures but even even within boxing Ali stands out as as really only one or two or three names that brings an, an intense cultural credence to this man his name is spoken like nobody else's really in South Africa of course you know growing up in the 80s during apartheid and stuff like that political people were heroes to us and then sort of not much beyond that. So people who were in exile and people who were taken into prison, they were the names your parents taught you as really great people. And on top of that, you had one or two sporting heroes. And that's the power of sport. And everybody, literally everybody in this country knows who Muhammad Ali is. And I would go, I would venture to say that every poor person <laughs> across the entire world knows who Muhammad Ali is. That's the incredible immensity of this man's legacy. So it's really, really special. And that is that is a great perspective to have. You have a man who lives in K himself in South Africa, who that just goes to show you the global appeal and what Muhammad Ali means to so many people. That right there is the essence of Anfield Index. You have an American, a man who lives in London, a man who lives in South Africa talking about that's the, I mean, that's the greatest part about this. It's not three guys who live next to each other going, hey, what do you think about Ali? Hey, what do you think about Ali? So that is a, such a cool thing, Kay. Now, Atem, same question to you. So I've, I've grown up in a household where uh, football and boxing are very close to my heart. My dad, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm Egyptian born. So I was born in Egypt. I live in London. My parents have been raised in Egypt. And uh, football for me has always been massive, hence the Liverpool thing. And uh, the second thing for me has always been boxing. My dad is a massive, massive Muhammad Ali fan. He actually was lucky enough to attend the Rumble in the Jungle. She keeps going on at me when I 
trying to attend oh. my Vegas fights. It's like, yeah. Still, well. that's crazy, though. That is crazy. Oh. <laughs> that's wow. the, the hilarious thing is whenever I go, yeah, Dad, I went to see Floyd. It's like, yeah, whatever. I went to see <laughs> Jungle. I raise you. And now, in, in terms of age group, my, my age group is Muhammad, is Mike Tyson. And I used to always go, Mike Tyson this, Mike Tyson that. And my dad kept drumming into me, drumming into me the, uh, Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali. He gave me the, he showed me like, like videotapes back in the day of all the stuff they, they, they had on him. And it's, it's only when you, Muhammad Ali is not just a boxer. Like Mike Tyson is a boxer. And he, like, he, Muhammad Ali is more than a boxer. The more you read about him, the more you, um, the racism. And again, I'm, I'm Muslim again. So to have a Muslim effectively superstar is something great that like the entire Islamic world can lift. You know, I know we're going to touch on the, the Islamic stuff later on, but there aren't that many superhero, like, uh, uh, Muslim heroes out at the moment, given what's happening to the religion and the publicity around it. So for Ahmed Muhammad Ali, through all he achieved and through all he did, there is not a Muslim who doesn't know who he is. And, we're talking Africa, Asia, Europe, America, South America. I mean, everybody knew he is. I mean, they even made a skit about him on air, coming to America. That's how hilarious he is. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's when you get, when you appreciate and you, you read about him that you know that he is by far the greatest. Like the Floyds can talk the talk, but he, I mean, he, he set the scene for the trash talking. He did it with style. You look at Floyd, even if we're talking um, near history, you look at Conor McGregor in the UFC, the way they trash talk, all of it came down from Muhammad Ali. I don't think he was the greatest boxer ever, but he was more than a boxer, so he's the greatest ever. Those are excellent points. What, that's a great start to this podcast. So we're going to move on a little bit. And you know what? We'll switch up a little bit because you did talk to, talk about Islam. Ali converting, converting to Islam in 1964. So back in the 60s, that was unheard of for an American who was obviously born Cassius Clay, didn't want his slave name, per se, in his own words, so wanted to convert to Islam. Now, I, I know you guys will probably both remember, but when he first tried to, it was actually to convert to Islam. It was before 64, but the Nation of Islam was not comfortable with that because he was a boxer. And then, obviously, he was let in eventually. But how do you guys feel about him converting to Islam and its effect that it had on an American society? society in general, and to fans of Ali. Hatem, I'll stick with you. Being a Muslim, one of the biggest differences is this whole nation of Islam thing. So I can understand in America at the time, the civil rights movement. And I mean, his, he's got his one of his most famous speeches, which he uh, quotes he gave on Parkinson, where he just won the gold medal. And he went to a restaurant thinking, yeah, I'm the Olympic gold medal. I've represented my country. Um, I'm going to walk into a restaurant that in usually is basically whites and black segregation. And he walks into the restaurant. He says, uh, basically, uh, whoever's working in the restaurant says, sorry, we don't serve Negroes. And he goes, uh, well, I don't eat them either. It's one of his greatest things. And that gives you an indication of how bad the civil rights were. So already a problem with black culture, black famous sportsmen at the time. But he exacerbated it even more by then converting to Islam. So Nation of Islam is different from Islam. Nation of Islam believe that the, a guy called Elijah Muhammad is a prophet that was sent down or a messenger that was sent down to help the black people through their troubles of strife. So it's, it's interesting that initially they actually refused them entry because they're a, a very publicity hungry organization. And by him, by him joining, that instantly gave them the massive publicity, but it also turned a lot of people against them as well. So a lot of people went by the time he fought Sonny Liston were um, already dead against this brash, 
Brash Negro American that was also like a Muslim as well. Islam was seen in those days not quite as badly as it is at the moment with a bit of the Islamophobia. Islamophobia did start off in the 60s. So, um, it was a, it was a massive brave move. The whole slave name, a lot of black Americans believed that they were given slave names that way. And I mean, you've only got to look to one of his best friends growing up, Malcolm X. And him, Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali were very tight. Malcolm X was also not very publicly well liked because of one of the, um, he did a, he was part of the Nation Islam. He was effectively the poster boy of the Nation Islam. And then came the death of Kennedy, and he came up with a uh, a very bad quote about Kennedy when he said, oh, when the chickens come home to roost, about the assassination of Kennedy. So he was already alienated by the Nation of Islam. And when Muhammad Ali joined, when Muhammad Ali was with Nation, he was tarnished with the same brush. And again, it wasn't it wasn't a, the most public league. I mean, Ali won people over with his boxing rather than his uh, the the affiliation to Nation Islam. But it was a very brave move in a very difficult time for for Black America. Yeah, that that's uh that is great knowledge on that, Hatem. Thank you. That was um actually some stuff I didn't even know. So I'm gonna say one of his biggest regrets has always been his due to him following Nation uh sticking to Elijah Muhammad's ways is that he, uh, once Malcolm X was alienated, uh, Muhammad Ali was told not to uh associate with uh Malcolm X and that's if if you read one of Muhammad Ali's biggest regrets was the fact that when Muhammad Ali when Malcolm X got assassinated that he hadn't made his peace with him. Yeah, mm. no, that's that's absolutely right. And you listeners, you're starting to see what this man was up against, what he stood up for. And that's difficult. I mean, it's it's a difficulty that me as a white male will never understand. I will never I can read about it in a hundred thousand history books, but I'll never understand it. It's okay. Talk to me a little bit about a little bit more about converting to Islam. Yeah, I think I think you have to go but even even before that to understand the immensity of what Muhammad Ali was doing at that time and and what he was going through. It was almost how can I put it? It's almost not a choice. If 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 I can put it that way, and I'll, I'll try to explain a little bit more about what what's going on. But basically, Ali goes to win. Like Hatim says, obviously everybody knows he won his gold medal. He turned professional, I think, like a month after that. Threw away his gold medal after not being the story goes not being served in that restaurant. And at this stage, even before that, he he was really starting to question what it is to be black, who he was, what kind of person he is, and so these the name Cassius Clay. It comes from a, a very famous abolitionist, one of Abraham Lincoln's good friends. But this is this is the very difficult part about all this, and we're going to keep on running into this. So maybe maybe it's a good time to deal with this. But but things are not done in society because they're ethical. Generally, things are done because it's it it it's better for the people in power, and and that's been the story sort of of all our our you know general modern cult, modern history and the reason why i say that is because people think slavery for example was abolished because it was the ethical thing to do it wasn't it was done because it was the economically better thing to do and people like cassius clay who was um an abolitionist believed that scientifically white people were superior to black people so we we saw this and i know this as well in in south africa there was the, there was an immense huge debate about whether apartheid should continue from the, the white people in power because is this their their religious duty to confine black people or 
Should we go the other way, which is we need more money and the way to make more money is we can't keep the system going. So he read up on that and he read that Cassius Clay, despite the fact that everybody was telling him, this is a famous abolitionist. Do you know your name? Your name is from a famous abolitionist. He was Abe Lincoln's very good friend and he, he freed the slaves and he's a great man. And so he read up on it and he thought, this is not a great man. This this name, I should not carry this name. And so he when he goes, he becomes this boxer and we see from the t- he, I think he started boxing uh, training when he was 12. Five years later, he's turned, he's, you know, he's turning professional, basically. He's, he's, well, he's at the Olympics five years later, sort of. And it's very obvious he's got this talent for it. And now it's a problem. He's got an immense talent. He's starting to do things that boxers not really doing. He's starting to take things from like middleweight, welterweight, and put them into the heavyweight, which you're not supposed to physically really do at that time. And I can say at this point, boxing, Boxing is a sport of sluggers. These are street fighters and people who literally stand in the ring beating each other. Right? I'm, not, I'm not trying to demean anybody by, by saying that, but there was no science to this. Not no science, but there was very there was a lot less science than there is now. Um, you had bruises, sort of uh, people with insanely huge punches. If you had the biggest punch, if you could take the biggest punch, you would win the fight. That was that was the thing. That was Sonny Liston was an absolute monster, right? And so here you have this young black kid coming out, beating Sonny Liston, who is a very comfortable champion because Sonny Liston had a lot of stuff going on. (laughs) Rumors had it, you know, casinos and gambling and mafia and all that kind of thing. Um, But he was, there was no way that he was going to lose to this young upstart, Muhammad Ali. The odds were seven to one, which were greater odds then when Ali defended his title against Cleveland Williams, for example. So he comes, he beats Sonny Liston, and he starts talking this stuff, and he does it in a way that no one's seen before. So you have all these things happening, all the, it's, and the discomfort is sort of growing. When you have somebody doing all these things that that are not normal, it's easy, it's easy for the, the people who are sort of in, in you know, comfort zones and that kind of thing, who are told that people do things this way and other people don't do things this way. Now they're starting to get uncomfortable. Then he changes, decides to convert to Islam and immediately changes his name to, to um, I think it was Muhammad X or Cassius X. I can't remember now. But at that stage, I think it must have been like all of white America at that point must have just shut themselves because already you had this guy who was talking about being the greatest, doing it in a way that, that nobody else had done. And now changing to Islam. Later, you know, I completely agree with what Hatem said there. The that the Brotherhood of Islam is a controversial organization, and uh, we can see, particularly if you look into the journey of Malcolm X through there and how he comes out the other side. And I think this is where we must start understanding what what Muhammad Ali was going through at this time. He felt that this way was the way to best represent his people and to best represent his conscience. He was, he was, he's turned to Islam as an extension of his conscience. And because it was not the religion partially of mainstream America, I think that was, that was a factor. But the, the bigger factor is, I mean, Islam is literally, I mean, it, it's a religion of peace. The, the, the word that appears least in the Quran is jihad. And it's like at the, as the absolute last resort. We've got a lot of misinterpretations about what Islam means nowadays. But at that time, it was the same. Now, I don't know if you can imagine it, but like like today, if you had a big athlete coming out, like Serena Williams, uh, like Usain Bolt, 
a, a really top black athlete coming out and saying things, uh, especially like Serena does, twerking and um, loving black culture and saying things about black culture. And we still have this debate now. It happened during the U.S. Open recently. Should men get paid more than women? Why are we having this debate? Men should definitely get paid more than women. When we talk about, when we see Serena Williams loving black culture, it really affects people. And that's, it's 2016 and people are saying you shouldn't be doing that. This is not about race. It absolutely is about race. It's always been about race because race has been the thing that defines Serena Williams since she was born. It's not like sort of a, 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 a white person growing up in America where you're the majority, where all things are, are in your cultural direction. You don't have to go outside your comfort zone to enjoy everything or to partake in particular things. And we have this in the 1960s. Where like it was, it was okay to call black people nigger in the press, you know. And so all these things are starting to happen. It was massive. Muhammad Ali changing to Islam, absolutely, completely. It, it, today it wouldn't have been as uh, as big, and people converting to Islam is is sort of okay. The the Islam as a religion has the phobia around it, but back then it was being black, it was being brash, it was being different. It was having the lip and then he turned to Islam. I mean, honestly, I would not be surprised to hear that like the CIA were after him or something like that. It caused absolute repercussions around the world. That was awesome, Kay. And it's funny you bring about the CIA. He actually was, I believe, tapped up by the FBI at one time. But that's a great segue into talking about Ali's courage to stand up to racism in the 1960s civil rights movement in America. Now, I myself, white male living in America, Grew up in an all-black neighborhood, poor neighborhood. So I know what it's a little bit like to see some racism. And guys, I got to say, we know racism is all over, still rampant. It doesn't really matter what anybody says because I see it. You guys see it. You see it in mainstream media. Um, you talked about Serena. I'm a huge Serena Williams fan. But there are many people who will not like her, just the color of her skin, because she's not white America. White America looks at everything and not everybody. I don't want to put everybody on the pigeonhole people, but a lot of white America look at everything like you're not doing the things that we that we do that we like. So I'm going to criticize you. You're too brash. You're too cocky. I don't like it. You know, what's a good example, Joey, very, very quickly is this Beyonce Lemonade album that came out. And at that point, a lot of people came on and said, this, what is this album? It's not, it's not talking to me. I, I don't understand. You can't just release an album like that. This album is problematic. It's inciting violence is what Piers Morgan said. Yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> we know what we think about Piers Morgan. But it, yeah. it was just the fact that the album was not made for white America. Yep. That caused so much issue, you know, and now you have somebody who comes to the to one of the cores, you know, a, a boxing champion of the world doing this kind of stuff. Absolutely insane at that time. And that's, that's the thing. We, we see all these people who stand up now and they know they stand up for rights and we do the Black Lives Matter and things of that nature. But they're kind of protected in, in 2016. Think about Muhammad Ali in 1960s. I mean, he's doing these speeches at colleges, standing up for, you know, the white, the enemy is the white people, you know, things of that nature, because he felt like he was being held down by white people. And I, and you got to understand that. So this is a man who could have been killed at one of these things, way unlike today's society where you're kind of protected with police everywhere. So Hatem, tell me how hard it was for Ali to stand up when it feels like you're the only one against a crowd of people who are against you. 
So what what's interesting with Muhammad Ali is that at the same time as he was standing up, we had uh, now I've just literally uh, finished this documentary, so it's fresh in my mind. So O.J. Simpson was at a similar time. He just won the uh, Heisman Trophy, so he was as a, another high-profile black person around the same time. I think uh, I think O.J. Simpson won it in '68, I believe. So you've got Muhammad Ali saying, "Oh, yeah." Uh, civil rights, civil rights, and then you've got the likes of O.J. Simpson saying no. So that's the biggest parallel is the the bravery that Muhammad Ali showed in standing up against racism. And there weren't not all black athletes at the time supported him as well. I think Bill Russell, the basket, famous basketball player, supported him. But other than that, they were the lonesome two or three amongst. While uh, while O.J. Simpson looked at it and said I, he just towed the party line. That was a big, as a big thing. So for Muhammad Ali to stand up and go, I mean, it's the equivalent now of, I mean, obviously sponsorship now is huge. So it's the equivalent of going against what your sponsors tell you to do and standing up and being political. It doesn't happen anymore. You won't see Floyd doing it. I'd even say you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even have seen Michael Jordan do it. And um, for Muhammad Ali to do it at a time, like you said, very militant, like there was the, the Ku Klux Klan were very, very rampant at those times. It's a miracle he didn't get shot. There was no police protection. I mean, <laughs> mm. it, it's, it, family death threats to him didn't exist. So he's blessed in the way. Or we're all blessed that he was able to do that. Because, I mean, like, as you touched on before, the Black Lives Matter, it's a very protected pro- protest. So we've had the police killings, etc. Can you imagine what Muhammad Ali would be doing now if he was around at the same time of a lot of the police killings now? I mean, he was definitely monitored by the CIA. I know that because they were because of his link to the Nation of Islam, he was definitely monitored. I know Malcolm X was wiretapped, so the fact that by association to Malcolm X, that Muhammad Ali was um, was definitely wiretapped. Also, there's a famous, uh, I think, a meeting between Malcolm X and uh, Muhammad Ali where they they met up in I think it was Ghana, and the FBI were like ten seconds behind them. So white America, white government was fearful of Muhammad Ali. It's it's it, it's interesting they never tried to take him out because without getting too politically um politically controversial here in the 60s if somebody didn't toe the party line they generally got shot Malcolm X Martin Luther King later on mm, obviously mm, the Kennedy mm. uh John F Kennedy uh John F Kennedy was showing a bit more um out of all the presidents at the time he was showing a leaning towards the civil rights movement or at least being more sympathetic his is it his brother Robert Kennedy? Was it his nephew? I can't remember. No, it's his brother Rob Kennedy. He got shot as well. So it's 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 a miracle. In that, I mean, one of the things that Muhammad Ali fights were so packed was because everybody wanted to see this brash Negro lose, and he he capitalized on that. But he, I mean, he won people around. Eventually, you couldn't not be captivated by what he said. You couldn't not at least listen to what he said. Initially, when he came out, I mean, I think when he fought Sonny Liston, a lot of people wanted him to be knocked out. I mean, obviously, Sonny Liston had the, I think, Kay, you touched on it, um, with the, uh, the mafia and stuff, but the first Sonny Liston fight, he was a massive, a massive underdog, and a lot of people came out with the intention of seeing this upstart, mm. brash Negro mm. get, get the, um, get battered, basically, and, as he said, he shook up the world. It, it's, I mean, there's nothing we can even put a parallel in, Meryl, um, in this modern world, Serena Williams, I agree, racist. I was at Wimbledon a few years ago when she lost in the quarterfinal to some German woman, and I was just in the toilets, and this this old guy comes up and goes, "Oh yeah, we don't want people like her winning." I'm so glad she lost, and I'm like, "This is like 2013 or whenever it was, 2013, 2012," and it's amazing that 
even though we're talking about what he was doing in the sixties and how brave he is, he's he's still been he's still fight he's been still fighting that battle all the way up until his death. Racism is mm. rife. It it's probably. I mean, would he would if Muhammad Ali was around today, would he be saying the same thing? Probably, and he does, and he has, and it, it, it's it's amazing. It's it takes a lot of courage to stand up against public opinion, or majority public opinion, or the sponsors' public opinion, or our televised public opinion to do what he did. It's it's unbelievable courage. I mean, he he put himself at risk. He put his family at risk. He put all the people around him. But he also, I mean, he also had people who. Angelo Dundee got a lot of grief for joining him as well, I believe. Um, obviously, Angelo John Dundee stuck with him through thick and thin because of, I mean, there's reasons behind it we'll touch on later. But it, I mean, all his entourage were in, under pressure, under pressure. It's, it's huge. I mean, winning the Olympic gold medal should mean that you're, you've, you've worn, you've worn the United States on your chest. You should be equal. But hey, as we know, and I touched on before, he wasn't equal. He ended up throwing, he ended up uh, binning the uh, Olympic gold medal in the river, I believe, which led to him being presented to one. Fast forward, it would have been doing the maths, 1996 Olympics. So it's huge. And he is the symbol of racism. I, I don't, I mean, I think when he got the Parkinson's disease, there was a, a deep sigh of um, a relief around white America when it happened. That's a very, very controversial, nasty thing to say. But I can say that with good conviction that a lot of people breathe a sigh of relief when he was effectively silenced. Because you can imagine him now through the 70s, mm-hmm. the 80s, the 90s. And we had the race riots with the O.J. Simpson stuff and then the Rodney King. Um, and I mean, I, can you imagine? I mean, there was a sigh of relief that he was silenced, but he still kept going anyway. you got to love the guy, man. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Um, okay, talk to me. Yeah, look, there, there is... It, I'm not, I'm not going to say too much because Hatim has put it brilliantly there. The press hated Ali. They hated him. And words are thrown around now, like media darling and that kind of thing, because he was always there with a, with, a, with those amazing quotes that he had. I mean, almost I, I, everybody knows an Ali quote. Everybody knows an Ali quote. And there are some absolute gems. But he, you know, he was so pretty. <laughs> he was so presentable, so eloquent, um, so clever. You know, the, the press sort of had to go. It's like, it's a, what, what can we even say about that now? It's like if, if the English didn't like Jürgen Klopp because he was a foreigner, but he says such intelligent things that you just have to sort of go along with it at the moment and uh, uh, hope he stuffs up at some other point later. But that's what it was like. That's what it was like back then. Um, so the big thing, I think, of all this is when, when Muhammad, Ali stu- Muhammad, Muhammad Ali stood in front of the court and said, no Viet Cong ever called me nigger. That that was such an immense moment because I understand it was his religious beliefs and certainly that was a driving factor. But he was very clearly stating there that this was about conscience. He was very he was always very aware of race. He was always telling black kids to dream to 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 go bigger, to do something more. And you must remember after he changed his name to Cassius Clay, it's not like to Muhammad Ali from Cassius Clay. It's not like people just stopped calling him Cassius Clay. They just carried on because they were like, no, well, that's your name. That's your name. I'm just going to call you that. And, um, it, it, uh, you know, it was, there's a really good quote, uh, that, that Cassius, that, um, after he changed his name from Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali said, he said, I'm no longer Cassius Clay, a Negro from Kentucky. I belong to the world, the black world. I will always have a home in Pakistan, 
in Algeria, in Ethiopia. This is more than money. And when he said no Vietcong ever called me money, he was clearly demonstrating his sympathy, his solidarity for brown people all over the world, for people of color all over the world, for black people everywhere to say, you can't send us to go kill other black people. This is, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. It will never make sense. And I'm just not going to do it. And what he gave up, what he gave up in his, in his life for his conscience, he didn't even blink to do it. He thought about it a little bit. It wasn't even a choice for him, it seemed. He was just, that's what he had to do. That was the kind of person he was. And I mean, uh, yeah, that, that, that's all you need to know about Muhammad Ali. That was the most important time in his boxing career. And he decided to give it up for other people, for people he'd never seen, he will never meet, for people of color like him all over the world who were discriminated and um, just disavowed and disabused by the system. He said, this, you cannot stand for that kind of injustice. And that's what he did. Muhammad Ali is an absolute anti-racist champion. And there is literally... There's no other way that history can portray him. It's that big. It's interesting. Very well said, my friend. It's interesting ahead, that other, other sporting icons since Muhammad Ali, I mean, everybody talks about Michael Jordan and even the current guy, Usain Bolt. Never dream of it. If if a similar situation came about where he would have to stand up and be controversial, you know that Michael Jordan would never do it, would have never done it. You know Usain Bolt, as much of a lovable guy as he is, it's changed. It, they would never do it. Sponsors would have a word in the ear. I think I remember a conversation with um, an interview with Michael Jordan where um, he was asked to comment on what was it? I think it was. I think it was. I think he was asked to comment on the Rodney King race riots, and he came up with a quote and said, "I mean, what are you, he was asked whether to condemn white um, police action or something, or white people's treating with black people, and he said, well, hey, they buy my trainers too.'" I mean, that sums it up, right? That sums up the day, mm-hmm. this day and age of sponsors. Muhammad Ali, I mean, Muhammad Ali gave away, I mean, what, he was banned for almost four years of his prime. It's the equivalent of a footballer losing mm-hmm. the best years of his life. He, and like you said, he didn't bat an eyelid. Unbelievable. Never happen again. Never would happen. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Not many people would give up that prime years of their career and not complain about it at all. So Anfield Index listeners, if you ain't feeling the emotion in this podcast... I'm not sure you have a pulse. (laughs) Let's take a quick break and we'll come right back and smash the rest of this. You're listening to the Anfield Index Podcast Channel. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, and we're back. This, again, this is the brand new Anfield Index Legends podcast. Um, we're going to continue to talk about Ali. I got two great guests, Kaylin and Hatem. Yeah, we're going to move on to Muhammad Ali's decision to not go to the Vietnam War. So Ali had many reasons for not going to the Vietnam War. Um, you know, this is he's a real stand-up guy, obviously. So we know that he was banned for boxing. We know he was stripped of his heavyweight title. We know he went, he didn't want to go for religious purposes. When everybody else said, no, 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 he's just afraid to go to war. He doesn't want to go, blah, blah, blah. So Hatta, talk to me about Ali's decision not to go to the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War was controversial in itself, and you can see it from his point of view. If if I'm not treated as equal by the people that I need to represent in a war, why should I represent them? And white America was looking for any excuse to turn against them anyway, unpatriotic, undemocratic, this and that. So this gave them the perfect. I mean, they tried. They tried every method to try to get him enlisted in the first place. And then and when when they did enlist him, I mean, to, to immense bravery to stand up to the court. And all the lawyers in the world couldn't get him out of it, unfortunately. You, you, you're taking on the... He took on the United States government, mm. not just like a... like Not just a, like a, what we do, taking on an MP in England. You're talking on the might of the US government. That doesn't... I mean, it's it was a losing battle. There was no way he was ever going to win it. And they knew it. And it, this... It, and I think this was their way. I mean, they bled him dry of any any finance he did. He uh, his act of not going to the Vietnam War meant he he was in financial hardship. And what was interesting, actually, during this, and I, I know I touched on a little bit earlier with the Nation of Islam and their publicity hungry, having him as the poster boy, they basically faded into obscurity. They didn't back him. They didn't do anything when he was, because the, even even them who are so preach separatism, the white man is the devil, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they couldn't even back him either. And he was he was basically on his own, fighting the Crusades. I mean, there's obviously the uh, the Joe Joe Fraser lent the money during that period, etc. But I mean, he t- to take on it would never happen. I mean, the nearest thing. Im- Im- imagine how emotional we get when we talk about hills when we say, oh, like effectively the um, the ninety the families of ninety six took on the government, took on the establishment. I mean, it's a, I'm not I'm not putting them similar, but this is in in the sixties. It was unheard of to do that. What the government told you to do, you did. It was everybody was a conformist, and he he. I mean, as I touched before, he lost the biggest. I mean, the most prime part of his year doing this. But he was a flat. He knew that he couldn't back down. He got himself in a situation where the moment he said no, Viet Cong ain't call me nigger. The real people that I'm fighting against are the ones that call me nigger back home. The moment he said that, there was no turning back. I don't think for any minute he, any second he would have wanted to turn back, but that was it. It was, it was set in stone. I'm fighting this. I mean, they, they stopped short of jailing him. 
I know he got sentenced to five years in prison. I think he got, he got, um, he got, uh, fined, I think it was $10,000, which in those days was like huge. And obviously the boxing boards who were already pretty much against him anyway decided what, what better way to do? Let's just ban him for three years anyway. So, I mean, it was hard. I mean, he, how many people do that? Like, mm. I, I don't mm. know. I don't, putting aside sportsmen, I don't know anybody who would actually give up their career, their livelihood. And he was, he, he was well documented on his number of wives and children. So, so he, he's putting his family and he had a ton of hangers on as well. So he's putting them all, all of their welfare at risk for this to prove to prove a point and a very salient point as well. And people real people initially, even those that were the most vocal against him, suddenly came to him. You can't not but admire eventually you have to admire him. And it, yeah. and every the the sentiment against the Vietnam War was growing and growing and growing to the point that they all knew he was right in the end anyway. The Vietnam was war was wrong. Everybody knows it was wrong. And nobody had the courage to say it. Along came a black guy because it was a black man who said it. It's like, oh, he's he's un, he's he's undemocratic. He's not a nationalist. He's not he's he's not. It's so un-American to do. Imagine if a white man had said it, right? I don't think any any of the issue would have happened. I'm trying to think of any of the white icons that would have around at the same time. I can't offhand think of it. Uh, any but uh, if a white a white person had said what he said, I don't think it would have been met with the up the the furore that it was met. I don't think they would have been sentenced to prison. I don't think they would have been banned from their respective sport or job. He brought a lot of hatred out, but that act of him sticking out the um of pulling out of the uh, the conscription basically targeted a lot of black hate onto him. So he absorbed, he diverted a lot of black hate onto him and he became the beacon for racism towards him as well, which is another brave thing to do as well. Because he just became like white racist at the time. We're like, oh, Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali. It became such a, such a, an, an insult, insult to them and everything they stood for. And it, it was, it's brilliant to see them all just basically because when the war, when they eventually pulled out the, when the war eventually ended, every one of those people who vilified him knew that he was right in the end anyway. It's just that he had to sacrifice so much just to prove a point. Yeah, no doubt. It's such a hard, Vietnam War was such a polarizing topic and you are, Muhammad Ali is actually one man himself. How he had the courage to do this, I'll never know. But you stand up against it and as you said, Hatem, as a black man, this is not a white man doing this. This is a man who knows so much hate thrown his way and he still stood up to it didn't think for a second what the consequences were so okay what's your opinion i don't now? i don't have that much to add to hatim's uh stuff is absolutely amazing I, I think you know I, I, the only small thing i can add was when ali was was drafted basically his choice was this don't go you will not be you will not be going anywhere near the front line Basically, you have to do a couple of exhibition bouts for our troops, get the get the morale up, or you could go to jail. This is literally like somebody offering you cake or jail, and you chose jail, you know, because it's 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 what you what you stand for. It's, it's an absolutely incredible decision for somebody to do it. I mean, on the day that he was sentenced, the U.S. Congress voted to extend the draft by four more years. This, this, you know, it was extremely significant in what happened. I, and I'll just end on a quote, but this is, this is how the man himself saw the problem. It wasn't a matter of, of fighting for your country because that's not what it was. It wasn't a matter of going to jail or not going to jail. This is these, these are Ali's own words. 
I strongly object to the fact that so many newspapers have given the American public and the world the impression that I have only two alternatives in this stand. Either go to jail or go to the army. There is another alternative, and that alternative is justice. If justice prevails, if my constitutional rights are upheld, I will be forced to go neither to the army nor to jail. In the end, I am confident that justice will come my way, for the truth must eventually prevail. That man was looking at this and saying, like, sort of, in, we're in a democracy. This is supposed to be a democracy. I'm supposed to have constitutional rights. I'm supposed to be able to choose my own path in life. I'm not able to. That is not, that is incorrect. That is not democracy. That is something else. He saw way past what we, what we, what people were giving him credit for at the time. And he was called the draft dodger. He was called a number of, of really ugly things at the time. And as Hatim said, just absolutely threw away, you know, we lost, we lost prime years of perhaps one of the, you know, definitely one of the greatest boxes we've ever seen in the world. We lost that because you know, we wanted to go disenfranchise and other people at, at some point. It's absolutely crazy, you know, and for him to stand up and do that, mind-blowing, mind-blowing at the time. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think of Muhammad Ali, just the name fills you with emotion, fills you with pride. Like, mm. that's, what I wanna, that's what I want to strive for. If I could be a little tiny, a quarter of the person he was or the things that he did, it's amazing. He, you know, the man lived till he was 74. And uh, he did he did so much in his life it almost makes me feel like I'm failing. But um, <laughs> let's, let's move on and talk about Ali's philanthropic, if I could speak, work. <laughs> now Muhammad Ali made a lot. He was a lot to many different people. He dedicated his time, his money to so many different things. It's okay. Talk to me about his lasting legacy on the on the world. And all the charities he was involved with. That's what I want to hear about. He was, I mean, this was, this was quite crazy. So, I mean, I'm just trying to open up the, the notes I have on his fights, but this is the immensity to which Muhammad Ali was dedicated to a group of people. And not many people know this about Ali, but the income that he generated wasn't, he never thought of it as, as like his per se. It was more his responsibility. And even from the time when he was uh, fighting, he was really doing a lot of philanthropic stuff. But he he had obviously an entourage, but a, a greater community that, that he was supporting. And I mean, really, if we look at his fighting career, we can we can see that, you know, his last fight really against uh, Joe Fraser, that's Joe Fraser 3. That happened. And really, maybe he should have retired then. And we see him come out into the ring. And this is it's incredibly heartbreaking part of Muhammad Ali's career. Uh, like I, it's it's very difficult for me to put that into words. Uh, like I don't know. Like maybe maybe I can do that with a little story. But when when the rumble in the jungle was going on, and it's very difficult for us to appreciate now because we know that he won, and in, we know Muhammad Ali is one of the greatest boxers we've ever seen. But George Foreman, George Foreman was unbelievable. He was like a god. He was like a boxing god. He was too fast um, relative to his size. He w- he would get you in the corner and batter you. He would demolish you, right? And when he was fighting, when he was fighting Muhammad Ali, my father and my grandfather were listening on the radio. And my grandfather was 
was really restless. He was standing up and walking around. He'd come and sit down and, and, and then he couldn't. He'd get up and walk around a little bit more and, and then come back. And my father didn't like really know, didn't know what was going on. He'd never seen my grandfather like that. And it got to a sort of, you know, about the fifth round. And that was like, you know, at the height of when Foreman was just absolutely taking Ali, you know, not beating him, but battering him. It was, it was like hitting on a slab of meat all the time. And my dad followed my grandfather to see what he was doing. And my grandfather was going away to cry. He was crying because he thought Muhammad Ali would die that day. He thought George Foreman would kill Muhammad Ali that day. And that's how much he meant. And so, I mean, he carries on boxing, obviously, he finishes Joe Fraser. What follows are 10 fights, 10 fights he possibly never should have been in. And the, one of the, one of the reasons I think is he, he carried on fighting is because he had to sustain, you know, uh, uh, many different groups of people after he, he, he was, he really should have stopped fighting. You know, um, it, it, it's just a really sad story, especially when you look at what, um, the condition he started getting into after those fights and, 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 you know, being hospitalized and stuff like that. But obviously the Alzheimer's thing is, he's, he's been a, a very good contributor to that. But I think most of his, I let Hatem talk, talk about his, his former stuff in a little while. I, I think his sort of greatest contribution to all that is just the informal way that he would support people. And, uh, you know, besides his, his formal stuff, the informal ways that he supported those communities that he would, um, just just be there to to keep his entourage going to make sure that everybody around him had enough that was absolutely incredible to me you know and um yeah no like i say i'm uh, i could talk about this forever but i'm going to let um i'm going to let him take over from here <laughs> um so it's funny you touch on the entourage and for me i blame that entourage for making him fight those 10 fights mm. um my uh, late like uh, one of the fights I remember and I remember seeing a documentary about it is when he fought Larry Holmes. Larry Holmes was his sparring yeah, partner. His sparring partner. And Larry Holmes, out of respect for Muhammad Ali, didn't want to knock him out. It was awful to watch. And this was when I used to say to my dad, oh, this is the Muhammad Ali you're talking about. And he'd be like, look, this is the Muhammad Ali I'm talking about and show me the various the, the various things about him. He had an entourage and that's why he fought longer. He shouldn't, I mean, what's it, what's even more depressing is that he fought one more time after um, Larry Holmes where every I mean he was those 10 fights I mean one of the one of the sell, one of the things he was selling the fight was with the Joe Fraser fight uh, Thriller Manila the third fight was that this is come and see me this is the last time you're going to see me fight this is gonna mm. last time. Mm. and if only he'd stopped if only I mean that's one of the big, I mean, Joe Fraser and Muhammad Ali, obviously, Joe Fraser went to his grave hating Muhammad Ali. It's interesting because Muhammad Ali was around in a, in a, in a legacy, at a, at a boxing era where every amazing boxers, Ken Norton, George Foreman, Joe Fraser, etc. And he, he, one of the things that Joe Fraser was jealous about was that, was that Muhammad Ali, Basically got all the attention, but Muhammad Ali mm. used it well. He helped. Um, he 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 spoke out on just about every issue. It's it's quite any any issue. Muhammad Ali would be like a, almost like now you get the idiots on um, like the social media, like the likes of Piers Morgan commenting on stuff. He he became a spokesman on anything race related anywhere in the world. Muhammad Ali would be talking through that. He had his charities. 
and it, he he was revered so much in terms of I mean would have been the which was the the Gulf Gulf War would have been what twenty five years ago so that would have been the first Gulf War. Mm. Um, mm. Saddam Hussein took some hostages. Who 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 was the yeah only, who, yeah 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 who was the yeah. only one the, the guy I mean Do you know Hatem Hatem about that I, apparently what happened is that is that like literally Muhammad Ali walks into the room and then Saddam Hussein and Saddam Hussein talks to him a little bit and then at some point they get to yeah but Saddam you have to yeah yeah no we let them go uh, no problem where can we drop them off for you and stuff like that <laughs> like Saddam Hussein himself couldn't couldn't he already admitted to himself like a while back he was not going to say no to Muhammad Ali so. I mean, you might as well use the time to get to know him a little bit better. Like, absolutely incredible. As soon as I mean, the story goes from like again, it might be urban legend again, but the story goes that when Saddam Saddam Hussein was fairly, I mean, he was adamant, I ain't releasing anybody, get out my country, blah 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 blah, and even even the people, um, the entourage of George Bush's. Um, Presidency was like, look, this is a pointless thing. We're not going to guarantee your safety. This is nothing. Muhammad Ali was like, look, I still think I can make a difference. These are brown people. These are, this is an unjust war. I think I can reason with them. And the senator around him were like, what's the point? This is obviously some propaganda stunt by Saddam Hussein. I guarantee you Saddam Hussein is going to go meet Muhammad Ali, pose from her a picture, send it to his people and say, look, even Muhammad Ali backs me and nothing's going to happen. And exactly as you touched on, Muhammad Ali, um, Saddam, Saddam was saying, I don't think for any minute I actually believed that Muhammad Ali was actually going to go there. He turns up, he's like, he was in completely in awe. I mean, considering that this guy was the enemy of the alleged free world at the time, for him to do that mm. is huge. It doesn't get the, I mean, it's interesting, of all the acts he's done, this doesn't get as much publicity as it should. I mean, we're talking mm. a dictator. I mean, God, I mean, imagine what he could have done with... And I, 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 I think, again, it might be a bit controversial again, but I think when the government saw this, saw that much power he got, they wouldn't, they wouldn't ask for him. We've had similar situations since then. We've had Gulf War Two, the sequel. And we've had several other unjust stuff. He spoke about nine eleven. He could have. He was. Mm. He spoke um, again with the anti-Islamic stuff. The nine eleven. He wasn't used as much again after that. Uh, after the releasing of the hostages, because again, why America got this guy's got Parkinson's disease, and yet he's still able to influence this. This is huge. They, they don't want him being a massive figure again. The kind of thing, you know, God, I thought we'd silenced him. I thought he'd already been silenced now, but this was a huge thing. I mean, it, it, he risked his life. I think the Americans didn't afford him any protection. Said you go on your own, you go on Basically, your own. Yeah, yeah you go on yeah. your own accord, and whatever happens to you, you're on your own. You get shot, you get hostage, and we're, we're not going to do anything for you. That's huge. We're talking, I mean, I mean, this is how many years after he's, I mean, when was the Gulf War? Uh, when was the Gulf War again? It's 25 94, years. 94. 94. So, yeah, so he'd retired, I mean, he'd officially retired in 81. So we're talking um, 15 years ago, 15 years from his boxing career ending. And he's still able to influence people. I mean, I mean he's, he did a lot for the Islamic world. He fought a lot. He became a, I mean, he's, he became an, an, an icon. And even for the younger generation, especially with a lot of the things, the unfortunate situations that have happened with obviously 9-11 and the various situations, he always comes out and says that he doesn't, these terrorists do not speak for my religion the same way that Hitler does not speak for yours. And he, he comes up with stuff like that that's amazing. And it's good because through all the Islamophobia or the hatred towards, just as it was during the time, 
I'm sure the same same sort of thing with the the, uh, the anti-black racism during the 60s as well. Black people as well as Muslim people now just look at them and say, wow, you don't have to stick up for us. And yet you're doing it. You're putting everything on the line. And and he will always be listened to. He won the respect mm. of the world in, uh, during his stance on the Vietnam. So now when, when, when Muhammad Ali says something about a particular issue, it could be about anything, anything from a football match to... I don't know, a cookery class. He, he, he gets, he gets, he gets listened to. It's amazing, man. I mean, he, he got over the division between you have sportsmen, you have politicians. He, he got rid of that division. A sportsman became, he became, he was more than, he was civil rights, he was sport, he was politics, he was comedy. I mean, Michael Parkinson interviews with him, some of the stuff he said about Islamic women and, when they, when they were questioned about it, like hijab and stuff like that, some of the stuff he said it in a way that got people to listen and got people to educate. It's a shame, man, because like, and this is going to sound quite emotional, but the, the Islamic world could still do with him now. And it's a shame he's gone, to be honest. And black America could definitely do with him, given what's going on with the, what's going on. Can you imagine him plus Black Lives Matter at the moment? Can you imagine him plus the, the, uh, the anti-Islamic stuff that's going on? Wow. It's a shame. Like he's just been taken from us a bit too early. But mm. it's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, and like I can, I can't even pronounce is it philanthropy. This is going to be the th- philanthropy. Philanthropy. Yeah, they're all having a problem with that. <laughs> um, let's go with charity. That's good. <laughs> I mean, he he gave a lot of his money. He looked after. I mean, it's well documented. A lot of haters will say, "Oh yeah, he's a womanizer," but he looked after them all. Man, of course, the Daily Mail, blessed. I mean, I I don't know what do in America. We have we have the Daily Mail, which is pretty much a right wing bullshit extremist paper. Yep. And um, it's funny that on the day that Muhammad Ali died, they posted a picture saying, "Oh, there's one of Muhammad Ali's sons um, wasn't looked after. He was cut." He was cut from his family and he didn't look after him. Mm. When Muhammad Ali it was mm. known, a lot of kids, he did look after him. He did, he did. He was just Muhammad, like, initially the kid didn't, didn't back his whole, um, the whole stance and he, he did things wrong to Muhammad Ali. He, there was aspects of his life. And outside of that, when he passed away, it was a, an amazing outpouring of grief. And it was, we all knew it was coming, right? Because he'd been ill a couple of times. I went to sleep on that Friday night. Knowing man, and like, like we talked about it that night, and said, "Look, I think this is really it." And when when he and waking up to that was just like everybody, everybody in the world was devastated. I mean, charities around the world, like anti-racism, anti-poverty charities, lost their beacon. It's like a, it was it was the um, lighthouse amongst all the hate in the world. He was the he was the lighthouse, and it it's there'll never be another man. It's just it's a shame that people like. Like the Usain Bolts and the Michael Jordans and the Floyd Mayweathers, unfortunately, have got similar fame, but they just they abused him, man. No, you're absolutely right, Hot Time. It's, you're, it's, we need more people like Muhammad Ali in this world. You're, you're not going to have Muhammad Ali. You just can't replicate people. But you bring up a good point about the high-profile colored athletes, black athletes. Uh, Michael Jordan's never spoke out. Usain Bolt, like you said, lovable guy. They're not going to hit them hard topics because they don't have, they don't have that kind of hey. We're going to, they're going to, somebody's going to come at me if I say something controversial. I'm not sure how to deal with that. And that's the thing with Ali. You know, he, this was all him. This is a brilliant man. This is a brilliant man coming up with these responses, all these quotes. He didn't have anybody writing this stuff for him. He was a man who'd stand up there, wax lyrical about what he believed in, no matter who thought about it, no matter who cared, didn't matter. That's the mm-hmm. kind of guy he was. So and Joey, one of the one of the most amazing things was 
interviews would start being about boxing and yeah. a very very short time they'd be about boxing and then he'd move on to different things he could speak to people in a way that was just so culturally relevant the parkinson one was great because i i thought parkinson kept on trying to pull the interview back to some place he could stand on again and ali just would never allow him to do that he kept on pushing it into places that were uncomfortable he did this all the time he would go to universities and speak to the students there about what was happening and stuff like that this was you know he was he, he under it, it's so rare to come across somebody who understood his importance in the world and what he could do and then actually used that importance to to try and do something greater than himself you know it's it's uh, like tim says a rare breed and i i honestly i don't know like Tim says, if we're ever going to see somebody like that again. I mean, it's interesting. Um, like, I, I know O.J. Simpson's been done to death recently with a spate of documentaries, but if you watch the ESPN one, which is rather than a celebrity BBC one that was produced, The People Versus, the, the, it talks, it actually, there's a section in there that compares, I mean, O.J. Simpson was a massive, as, as big an icon as Muhammad Ali at the time with the Heisman Trophy, the college, uh, college football trophy, and they, they compared the two lives and how Muhammad Ali still fought against everybody saying, no, you can't do this, you got to, you can't do it, you're an athlete, you can't be this controversial. Mm. O.J. Simpson, no, no, no. He was even asked his views on the, uh, on the, um, on uh, Muhammad Ali's draft, draft dodging, and he was like, oh, well, um, if I get draft, I, 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 I lay allegiance to the American flag. And that was just unbelievable, man. It's just like you go against mm. every, I mean, the reasons Muhammad Ali didn't win were, they were clearly for race relations. And I mean, I mean, Muhammad Ali, yeah, I mean, it's a, you watch buildups, the fights, everything, all these buildups, all these hypes and every, all these hyped up fights, like they're all because of how he did it. He would sell a fight. And it, it will never happen again. And it'll never happen again. Everything now is fake compared. He genuinely believed he was selling the fights. Yeah, mm. no, absolutely right. He he was a was a real real guy, genuine, and again, no one will be like him. Now, gentlemen, I would love to talk about this for a few more hours. <laughs> I know we are on a time limit, so I do have a few more few questions for you guys to end this. So I'll start with Hatem. You can go first, and I'll start with the first question. What was your favorite all time favorite Ali fight? In terms of quality, I would say Thriller in Manila. In terms of significance. It has to be Rumble in the Jungle. Uh, the reason is, I mean, to have a world title fight in either in Africa, to have a world title fight in the Philippines, never be done, never will be done ever again. It has to be Vegas, as you guys know. The significance of he united a complete, he united a continent, and the whole story behind it is amazing. But the fight itself for me is thrilling, Melilla, just because you see two guys driven on. Going to the limits of limits of humanity to win a fight. I mean, the the build up to the th- uh, Rumble in Jungle was like legendary. Unfortunately, mm. the build up to Thriller Manila wasn't. It was very nasty, and I think Joe Fraser took a, left a lot. In fact, Muhammad Ali also left a lot in the ring that day. I mean, we're talking fifteen rounds, man. Now people do twelve. Mm. These are 15 rounds, and that fight, Muhammad Ali made one of his biggest mistakes of taking Fraser uh, lightly in that fight. He thought after after he'd beaten him, after he'd equalized his, uh, sorry, avenged his previous defeat, that um, 
Fraser had nothing left. Fraser Fraser was driven on by the hatred of the... Uh, I mean, one of the worst things you can say to a black guy, it's ironic that I touched on O.J. Simpson being it, being the ultimate, but um, is the Uncle Tom. And that's the worst thing that any black guy can say mm. to another black guy. And that those words ate Joe Fraser. And those words drove drove Fraser to push Muhammad Ali to the point of... I mean, the score... The, there's two legendary stories about that. I mean, going into the 15th round, I think the three, two, three previous rounds before it, um, Joe Fraser's trainer was telling him he's going to stop the fight, he's going to stop the fight. And the, the story goes that Muhammad Ali was going to, um, before, in the interval between the 14th and the 15th round, Muhammad Ali was telling Angelo Dundee to cut his gloves. He had nothing left. Mm. And out of the corner of the eye, Eddie, I think Eddie Futch, Joe Fraser's uh, legendary trainer basically cut uh, cut um, Joe Fraser's gloves. Joe Fraser was blind already at one eye and he couldn't see out the other one. We think he was blind at one eye going into the fight and, and um, his, his other eye was completely closed so he decided to make the decision for the safety of his fighter to pull him out. So we never know if if Eddie Futch didn't have the 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 interests of, uh, of his fighter at um, her heart whether Muhammad Ali would have quit that fight. Muhammad Ali was not as magnanimous in victory as he was after, um, as as he was after his previous fights. He collapsed, I believe, and it's a shame, man. If only, if only, if only. So it's symbolic. If only he'd quit after that fight, we'd still have him now. Yeah, that's actually that's a great point. I mean, even Ali said after the thrill of Manila, which is actually my favorite fight as well. He said that's the closest I've ever come to death. I mean, he, Joe Frazier had a punch like none other. Um, but the, the point you brought up there, which I loved, is that the animosity that Ali just laid on him, I mean, it was so... To call a black man an Uncle Tom, I don't know if you can get much worse. And that was that was hurtful to Frazier. Frazier, I know, grew up in Beaufort, South Carolina, but lived the majority of his life where I live. So he's always always has a special place, but that was a great point for you to bring up. Now, Kay, how about yourself, man? Oh, there's so many big fights. I mean, the, the fights dot Ali's life, you know, and you, you tend to remember them for different reasons. Um, I'm just trying to, you know, think of all the unbelievable ones and like the Sonny Liston phantom punch. Oh my God, what a, what a punch. You know, that was absolutely incredible. Think of uh, Cleveland, Big Cat Williams. That was probably Ali's best fight it was at the absolute peak of his power i think i saw a stat once where like muhammad ali went 260 something punches without having one thrown back at him during that fight absolutely ridiculous that was that was the fight that you see the the vines going around where he's dodging all the punches and stuff ernie terrell where where he he called him cassius clay before the fight and in that was that was ali's most brutal refused to knock ernie terrell out and kept on saying what's my name boy so that was unbelievable. Obviously, um, Rumble in the Jungle, but I'm going to go with you guys as well. Um, oh, there was also that fight. He, he ended up losing it, but he broke his jaw. Was that to Norton? Yes, Norton. Ken Norton, yep. That was unbelievable fight. What the hell? He broke his jaw like so early in the fight, and he just kept on fighting. That, that went the distance. That fight. How can you fight? Like... Many rounds with a broken jaw. That's absolutely ridiculous. But it's got to be Thriller in Manila. It, it, it's, it's, I don't know if we have um, another sporting equivalent of that. We're, we're two huge forces. And this is the thing that makes Ali great in, in boxing is that he was a great amongst greats. Fraser was, is, Fraser's a really good guy. 
Let, let me just tell you that Fraser actually lent Ali money when he came out of yeah. prison. Um, so, you know, not a lot of people know that. And uh, the, the movie Ali actually uh, set a lot of people onto that one. But, you know, after that, especially to be called a guerrilla, you know, that was one of the things I, I really didn't like about what Ali did. He since apologized and said he was he was scared and, and stuff like that. But, you know, to, to do that to people was, especially a black man, was just, you know, it was... You look back now, and and you you can feel the regret, and they both regret. They've they've obviously made up since, but it was that one. I mean, after the fight, Ali just doesn't come out. He he. It it takes hours. It takes hours before he faces the press, and when he does, it's it's so subdued. He's just, and you can see everything was left in that ring to go up against another great and have a fight like that. It's I mean, wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's the, that, that, I mean, literally, we can only do movies about that now. That, that's the, that's the, that's the hugeness w- to which it happened. If you wrote a movie like that, people go, yeah, but it's a movie, but that had happened then where you had these behemoths, these titans coming out against each other, taking each other absolutely to the cleaners and both coming out, you know, s- slightly broken. I think you'd, you'd call that, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be Frazier's, um, uh, uh, the thrill in Manila. Not to mention the heat and humidity in Manila as well. I mean, oh, yeah. apparently it was supposed to be 100 degrees at um, at the ringside as well. And I mean, one of one of the sad things is that when Fraser died, he took his hatred of Muhammad. I mean, Muhammad Ali tried to build bridges with Joe Fraser before he passed away, and uh, I think he used to come up with stuff like, "If I was to go to war, I'd have Joe Fraser by my side." He tried to mm. build up, but unfortunately. I mean, I watched a documentary about Joe Fraser's death and he was, he was practically gloating the fact that Muhammad Ali's condition was down to his hands during the Thriller Manila fight, which is quite sad to see. And again, I mean, none of us will ever understand the, the whole, the hatred of an Uncle Tom being called mm. an Uncle Tom. It's, it's, mm. and he carried that towards the end and it was, once they both retired, once like all of them retired, I mean, Foreman had his, Foreman was more likable character and he, he'd found religion and he then had his Foreman grill, et cetera, et cetera. Muhammad Ali had his philanthropy. Got it right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Joe Fraser had nothing. He died practically broke and there was a bit of bitterness mm. towards Ali from that as well as the Uncle Tom comment. And he's got this ringtone where he says, it's, it, it's horrible to quote, but he says, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Uh, I, th- I th- something like, I've still got my, I'm, um, I can still do certain things. Look at me as in he's having a dig at Ali and saying, well, look, mm. look at the other. I think it was a float like butterfly, sling like a bee. Look at, um, look now, look at the other one now, look at me or something like that. That's not an exact quote. So, but it was words along that as in, look, hey, at least I've still got my ability to, yeah. To be able to, um, which is, it's a shame as well because they, each, each one of them made each other. Mm. It wouldn't have been, Muhammad Ali needed Joe Fraser, needed Joe Foreman, all three of them, and then you add Ken Norton, what an era, man. And you, you laugh at the era we've got at the moment where we've got Anthony Joshua, David Hay, and Tyson Fury, and everybody's talking about it being a great area for heavyweight boxing. It just depresses me, man. Yeah, no, those are great points. I mean, it's, those two, when some lot of times when Warriors fight, you get that mm. kind of after, you know, it's just, it's natural. Both things on each, each parties are not, not good things said. So, okay. Tell me your favorite Ali quote. Uh, my favorite Ali quote was, um, I believe it was before the Jerry Quarry fight 
but uh, this one sort of always stayed with me. I, I've got a little meme of it that I keep on my computer as well, but it's uh, nobody has tell me that this is a serious business. I'm not fighting one man. I'm fighting a lot of men. You're showing a lot of them. Here's one man they couldn't defeat. They couldn't conquer. My mission is to bring freedom to 30 million black people. And I mean, coming out of apartheid South Africa, that is that is the kind of comment. I mean, my father, you know, just to explain the significance of that, of that to me, my father says they are maybe, you know, the two greatest influences in his life, uh, probably Nelson Mandela. And he doesn't really know which one's bigger. He's going to give it to uh, Mandela just based on the politics and what he did for us, uh, you know, as a South African, obviously. But he says Muhammad Ali was, you know, it was so significant. It was so big what he did and how we used what he got. That it, it's, it's difficult to to not say he's the biggest influence on 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 people's lives and don't let anybody tell you that sport doesn't matter or that uh, this is sport and we should leave the politics out and all that kind of thing those two things are the same thing they always be the same thing everything has everything to do with politics <laughs> so um but yeah uh, Joey, that is my favorite quote that's uh coming from your father who was involved in that apartheid is really hard-hitting man i, I can't stress that enough so hatem how about your favorite quote? He's had many, but I think the one mm-hmm. that resonates with me the most is the one where he said, a man who views the world the same at 50 as he did at 20 has wasted 30 years of his life. That basically sums up his entire life, how he's how he changed and realized that what he was doing at 20, boxing, what he was doing, growing, you can't waste your life because at any moment it can be gone. And all these, all these, and it's, it's pretty much a dig at, like if you, you compare it to all the boxers now, if you look at Floyd, Sitting there doing his money money team and just gloating and showing how much money he's got. He's not actually doing anything with his life. He's still acting like a kid mm. in this time. I mean, but also at that time, Hatem, I mean, you had uh, Sonny Liston coming out from that kind of culture of you know just opulence, and then obviously towards the end of his career when Don King came in, that level. I mean, those are you know you could say he'd carry them with them just to even at the time it, it just looks like we haven't learned anything <laughs> basically everybody's the same <laughs> yep basically. don king's still here <laughs> oh god don't get me started on yeah. don king don <laughs> king oh don king yeah. kill, kill, basically screwed ali i mean the rumble in the jungle made don king right nobody yeah. had heard of him and i wish it had, i mean would never i mean i would love to know i would love to know what ali told him in the ring at the end of that fight he whispers something in his ear and oh, I'd love been to know about that before. He's been asked about that and still never said. He won't he said. say it, will he? No. Nope. No, he will not. So, well, I picked a. There's so many quotes from Ali. As obviously, both you guys know, but one that really, I mean, I have a book of quotes from Ali, but one that I really liked was he stated. He said, "War is against the teachings of the Quran. I'm not trying to dodge the draft. We are not supposed to take part in no wars unless declared by Allah or the Messenger." We don't take part in Christian wars or wars of any believers. Man, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. Why should they ask me to put on a uniform and go 10,000 miles from home and drop bombs and bullets on brown people in Vietnam while so-called Negro people in Louisville are treated like dogs and denied simple human rights? If that doesn't sum up Muhammad Ali, I'm not <laughs> sure what else does. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's just, and that's, and people... You know, think about today where people prepare speeches. 
This man just mm. got up in front of a mic and spoke what he felt from his heart. And that's really difficult to do. You can say it to yourself, but to say that on national TV or in front of a group of people, a massive group of people is just really difficult. And he's, he'll always amaze me. I mean, I, he just will. There's only certain people who, who touch you and you go, man, like that's, that's an amazing person. Everybody has their faults. Everybody. Nobody is exempt from that. But his positives far outweigh his negatives. So guys, I got one last question for you. Hatem, I'll start with you. Ali's toughest opponent ever. I'm not going to go with a boxing opponent, so I'm going to go with the establishment I'm going to say with. I'm going to say from the establishment covers the U.S. government, it covers U.S. public opinion, it covers white America, it covers nation of Islam. It also covers himself. I mean, he, 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 actually squash that. His toughest opponent was himself. And I think he lost the battle against himself because he went on boxing too long. And mm. for me, that's the saddest thing. He felt the need that he had to look after his hangers on. And it does sicken me when I see the likes of, uh, Pacheco and Dundee and that Drew Bundini um, do their talk, give their eulogies after he passed away. And I think for me, the toughest opinion was himself because if he'd listened to other people, he wouldn't have gone on for that long. This is st- strictly from it not going on, going on boxing too long. Mm. Again, having an opponent as strong as yourself also helped him with the other stuff as well, helped him get through the, the, the three years, the three to four year ban when he wasn't allowed to box. But I, I honestly think that his determination to look after people other than himself and put other people first is what cost him, which got him his illness. And which, again, he listened to his... I mean, he didn't need to fight 10 fights when his hangers-on decided. Mm. And yeah. w- if I was to criticize one act that he did, w- when he came out, when he resumed boxing again after the ban, why did he go back with the Nation of Islam? Because he felt and not because he felt loyal to them. For mm. what, and again, it's 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 fairly on a depressing note. But I mean, it's easy to say Joe Fraser. It's easy to say, which I even started off saying the government. But I think thinking about it a bit more, it's himself and his about his the, the advantage of putting himself before others became his downfall in the end because he thought he had to fight on to feed. I mean, Bundini was nothing without him. I think didn't Bundini try and sell something when he was um, when he was broke? Um, I think he sold something to one of our, wasn't, didn't he try and sell Ali's, one of Ali's belts or something? The guy who, the, 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 the black guy who, um, came up with all the quotes for Ali. Mm. So, mm. He, I mean, he, uh, he should have cut him off. He, he felt a loyalty to him. He felt a loyalty to fight on to feed him. And for me, that's, that, I mean, that's his biggest opponent. It's a bit of a weird one. I know it goes against the norm, but I think if he, if he put himself first a little towards the end of his career, he wouldn't have fought on, man. He would have stopped. He would have stopped after the, uh, the, the Joe Fraser fight in Manila. We would have had, I mean, he, he fought on for six more years. We, that's six years, six more years when his brain's already battered. I don't think. And he was slow, noticeably slower, yes. noticeably yeah. slower, you know. One of the worst things you saw was the, the, the Parkinson sequence of um, interviews and how he mm. started off and, but I guess he felt he had to do it for others, and, and I give that sadly became his downfall, man. 
again, it's one of the, but the other side of the coin is it's his greatest trait as well, right? Yeah, and I know you think that's a weird answer. I actually think that's a amazing answer. I can hear the pain in your voice having to answer that question. It's horrible, so, man. It's horrible. Yeah, it's like and all these interviews and all these like the Pachecos and the Angelo Dundee's. Oh, Muhammad, why didn't you tell him to stop? You knew, you knew he was, you knew he had Parkinson's. You knew he was slurring. You knew he was slower. You knew it, but yeah. you still allowed it, man. And they I, want, I, I, my blood boils when I see Pacheco as well, who's allegedly the team doctor, man. That whenever I see him, it just winds me up when I see his name on the screen giving a tribute. Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali. It's like, mate, you're. The and do you know, do you know, sort of what makes it worse is if we look at Rumble in the Jungle, in the literally in the locker room before the fight, you have he, Ali has his entire corner around him. Angelo Dundee says, It's this, and I'm out, man. Like, literally, I think you're going to kill yourself. Please don't do the fight. Please don't do the fight. And Ali says, you know, I got it. I got this. Don't worry. His entire corner, his entire, before the fight, Ali has to say, guys, you have to pick your faces up from the floor. At least pretend. You know, none of them believed in him. What's the use of having a corner if, if none of your entourage believe in you? You know, and then you want to go from that to, yeah, have 10 fights more or however many fights more that, you know, it, it's absolutely, absolutely, I mean, I can only agree with Hatem there. Just, just incredible, incredibly nasty stuff. All right, gentlemen, you guys absolutely smashed that pod. I could not have asked for better guests. Honest to God, it was really good. It's my first time hosting. So I'll tell you what, why don't we give some plugs? Hatem, I'll start with you. I know you have a brand new show out on Anfield Index. So, um, we looked at the Anfield Index, we looked and we thought, well, the Middle Eastern point of view is not represented. So me and my close friends, um, based, dotted around Middle East and London, did a Liverpool podcast called the Oilfield Index. We've done our pilot episodes and it should be on the uh, app, app ready to download. It's quite interesting. It was great fun to record. And, um, yeah, hopefully we give you guys a different point of view on everything Liverpool. Awesome. Okay, I know you're just about everywhere, my friend. Anything that, <laughs> anything you want to plug, pal? Uh, yeah, yes, thanks, Joey. <laughs> Firstly, excellent job hosting. Much better than I could do it. So, um, absolutely stunning job. Really, really uh, enjoyed that pod. Um, guys, you can catch me on Face Off, which happens after every game. We just finished the one against Burnley, which is out. Um, you know, by the time this one will come out, that one will be out. Uh, I, I start doing the main AI pod as I alternate hosting duties with uh, Marco Lopez. So uh, you should also be getting that one out soon. And then if I could just put a quick um, shout out to my boy, Roy, and he's starting his talking tactics pod. The introduction pod is out now. So do go check that out. Yeah. Congrats to everybody who has new shows on Anfield Index. Download the app. Everybody who was involved with AI are really cool people. They're up for debate. You know, hit everybody up on Twitter. I, myself, Joe Connors, um, I do a little bit with the AI comic pod writing. I do pods here and there. But I just want to say, again, this is the inaugural Legends and Filled Index pod. So anybody who's interested, hit Gags up. It's a great guy. On that note, you guys have a wonderful day. And thank you again for my guest. We'll talk to you soon. The champ is here. The champ is here. Like a butterfly, like a
boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.